This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, teaching minister Tim Peace will be teaching the message. So, in my house right now, we have been, um, you know, family, it's Thanksgiving season, we're all about sharing, so we've been sharing the crud back and forth, and uh, I actually have, I'm going into like the start of week three of the crud, although my crud turned into a full-fledged sinus infection, uh, so I got put on antibiotics, so that's fun. Um, And so I've been uh, trying to recover from that, get my voice back, and not cough every five seconds. That's just the win right there. But we've been passing it back and forth. So my wife, she's had the post-nasal drip and the the sore throat. And my soon-to-be four-month-old son, Leonidas, has the uh, cough and the runny nose and stuffy nose sort of situation going And it's interesting because those of you that are parents uh, already know this, so this isn't going to come as a shock, but I'm new to this whole venture, so I've suddenly learned that with being a parent, there are things that you can do as an adult that your child cannot. And one of them is blowing your nose. And so this requires, when you see that there's crud and stuff in your kid's nose, to do something about it. And so we've got, you know, we've got all the bells and whistles and tools to try to get that done. But one of them, one of them in particular, which is the only one we've managed to be able to use properly, has a cutesy little name. It's called the Oogie Bear. (laughs) Yeah. It's this little blue stick. It's got two ends with little bear faces on it. They're designed so you don't shove the thing too far up the nose. And then they've got these little rounded ends to pull things out of said nostrils. Yeah, that's right. I'm a parent now, so I'm going to say gross stuff. Um, And so anyway, so here's the thing. Like, every time, you know, this, this cutesy little device, every time we get it out, it even locks eyes on it. His reaction isn't, that's a cute little instrument of help. His reaction is, that is an instrument of torture. And he leans back and he screams and he pulls his head back and it's just like, you gotta hold his head still. And it's oftentimes a tag team effort. But eventually, you know, we get the stuff out and he can breathe better because he's been, with his nose being clogged up and him still breathing primarily through his nostrils, it's just one of those situations where if we don't get it out, he can't breathe well. So, so we're doing that, and you know, naturally, in, in the midst of all of us sharing all this gunk, I've been thinking through uh, our, the sermon today, and we're, we're talking about gratitude still. We're in the second week of the gratitude portion of our series called Undeserved. And so naturally, um, watching or taking part in pulling boogers out of my kid's nose gave me a good, a good thought this morning about perspective. Because gratitude is one of those things that it's nice to talk about at this time of year because it's Thanksgiving season and that's what we do. We talk about gratitude. We talk about what we're thankful for. But I think, honestly, that the topic is either one of those kitschy little topics that we talk about and then we forget about, or if you're going through anything major in life, it's a subject you just don't want to hear. 
And I can understand why. Because for most of us, we don't walk around with a particular perspective you have to have in order to really comprehend and grasp and take hold of the biblical idea of gratitude. And so, naturally, as I, as I was thinking about Leo's reaction to trying to clear his nose out, I was thinking about what his perspective must be in comparison to ours. In our perspective, we are loving, happy, smiley parents that just want to help him breathe. And so, while we don't like seeing him scream and have the irritation of something going in his nose, we know that we're doing something to help him get better. He, on the other hand, has none of that thought going through his mind. In his mind, everything was going really good today, and then suddenly I was, I don't know, feeling like taking a nap, and then mom or dad just decided to bring this thing near my nose, and I know what happened the last time they did that, and it wasn't fun, and it's not gonna be fun again, so I'm gonna scream about it. And it's understandable, because the truth is, A, having the stuff in his face is not fun. He didn't choose to have stuff in his nose. And two, even though we know the reason why that's good that we're getting the stuff out, he doesn't. And so in his mind, all it is is pain and irritation that he'd rather not have to deal with. See, the perspective that one has changes the way that you think and process about life and specifically about this idea of gratitude. And so this morning, I have to be honest with you, for the last two weeks I've been thinking about this message and I was talking to my wife about it and I was even bouncing ideas that I had off and telling her about the scriptures and stuff like that. And naturally, uh, being awesome, uh, she decided to break down why everything I was saying should not be said <laughs> in a sermon. And so she, she stopped me and she she raised a good question. I even told her about this idea of the story. She said, well, she, she says, but you're not tackling the big issue that needs to be tackled. And the big issue is the question we've all heard in some form or fashion. It's why do bad things happen to good people? Anyone ever had that question or heard that question asked before? Raise your hands. Get them up high if you have. There we go. Everyone's heard this question before. The technical term is theodicy. A theodicy is when someone is making a defense of the reality of God despite the existence and presence of evil in the world. How can there be a good God when bad things are happening and that God is either causing them or allowing them? See, when it comes to the topic of gratitude, we actually have to have the right perspective to truly appreciate what the Bible has to say about gratitude. And so, because I like to have fun with people, that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to answer that question this morning. So I want to start with a perspective shift thing, because this series of gratitude, we're going through the Proverbs, and there's a very specific verse, although it repeats itself again and again and again throughout the Proverbs, that's important for us, that's our perspective verse. And it's in chapter one, verse seven. And it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, 
I was leafing through some commentaries this week and a scholar by the name of Bruce Waltke uh, had a line in his commentary on Proverbs that I wanted to share with you for a moment. He says, what the alphabet is to reading, notes to reading music, and numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of Proverbs. I mean, think about that. You cannot read if you don't know the alphabet. If you don't know what notes are to be played, you cannot play music. And if you don't know how basic numbers work, you're going to be totally lost in doing math. You have to have the right perspective, the right tool, the right understanding in order to understand the rest of what's going on in Proverbs. And so in order to understand God, we, we have to consider what this means. First of all, in this verse, this word fear often has tripped people up throughout history because it's a word that actually carries three uh, sort of meanings all in one. The word fear itself is a little bit of a short change on the Hebrew. Yes, on one hand, the word implies that one is trembling before their object of fear or their object of of, uh, in their vision. The second thing is, is that the individual is in awe. They're awestruck by what they see or what they're grasping. And the third idea that's captured in this word is that the beholder of the idea or the God or the understanding or whatever it is, reveres so when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're, we're actually packing all three of those ideas together. Uh, trembling, awestruck, and finally, reverence. And so if we're going to talk about gratitude and we're going to have an understanding, if we're going to fear and be awestruck and reverent to God, we have to understand God's character and we also have to understand God's uh, character as it relates to people. And so I want us to go back for a moment to the beginning. The very first book of the Bible, it's called Genesis. And in the first three chapters, well, the first two chapters, we have the creation of everything. We have the creation of the universe, the world. And at the end, we have the creation of people. The first couple, Adam and Eve. When God creates people, he says, it's very good. And it says that he places the first couple, Adam and Eve, in a garden called Eden. And in that garden, God gives people what we in theological circles call free will. Now, it doesn't say he's giving them free will. What he actually gives them is a choice. He says you can eat of everything, every tree in this garden, save for one. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have everything at their disposal. But God's given them a choice. He's created them to be in love, relationship. He's walking amongst them in the garden. But they have a choice as to whether or not they're going to be obedient to God and continue to foster that relationship in the way that they were designed. Or will they eat of the fruit of the tree that he has told them not to eat. Well, we don't get very far into the book to find out that a serpent shows up, crafty serpent, it says, 
the craftiest of all. And he, he questions the people, and he, and he asks the couple, if God really said not to eat of this tree, getting him to question God's very words. And when they say, well, yeah, he, he said if we eat of this tree, we'll die. And then the serpent says, you surely won't die. God's just, he's just keeping you from some fruit that's good to eat. And so he continues in this and it says in the text that after looking at the fruit and seeing that it was in fact good for eating, it says Eve the woman takes a bite of the fruit and then gives a piece of the fruit to her husband Adam. And their eyes are open. They realize they're naked. They realize that they're naked in God's presence. They go to cover up. They go to hide. And God comes looking for them, already knowing because God's all-knowing, but he asks them, where are they? They tell them they've hid because they heard him coming and they realized they were naked. And he asks them, how do you know that? And suddenly it comes out that they've eaten the fruit of the tree that he told them not to eat from. And so because of this, God issues um, or speaks into um, both the serpent, the woman, and then the man these curses Now, you should understand something. God did not cause the curses. The curses in the text are a result or a consequence of them eating the fruit that they were not supposed to eat. That is key. So people have been given free will to be obedient to God. They've elected not to, and now there are consequences. And so he gives these consequences in the form of these curses to each party involved. And I want us to focus in on the one that he gives to the man, Adam. It starts in verse 17 of chapter three. It says, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow, You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, if you've heard this story a billion times, you probably have never stopped to look at the details of this curse before. But I want us to slow down and capture something here. One, the result of sin of Adam and Eve results in the very ground being cursed because of them. You see, sin didn't just break people. It broke all of God's creation as a result. When we sin, it doesn't just affect us. It affects everything. I told last service, my friend Rick had heard a saying one time, and I'll give you the clean version um, he gave me the clean version too, don't worry. Uh, it, it, the, the, the saying goes like this, sin is like throwing stuff into a ceiling fan. When you do that, it splatters over everything. That's what's happened because of the sin of humanity. Through painful toil, you eat food from it all the days of your life. And then the worst of the curse comes at the end 
Or it says that you will return to the ground since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Sin not only broke people's relationship with God, it not only cursed the very ground we all walk on, but it resulted in death for all that sin. And if you read the rest of the Bible, you'll come in Romans chapter three to Paul writing that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us followed the pattern of the first people in the garden and sinned. And thus, we cause the same result for ourselves and the same result for everyone within our sphere of influence and everything that we touch. The consequence of sin results into the brokenness of the world around us. And so, what we have, if you're keeping score at home, is God created everything to be good, including people, and people took their free will to be able to love God and to worship him and to be in relationship with him and instead chose to be disobedient to him and broke everything and what it was designed to be was no more. So because I like spoiling endings for you, let's go to the back of the Bible into Revelation 21. So if you understand so far the character of God that God creates, he loves, and yet he is holy, so he cannot be uh, near sin, and so there are consequences for sin. He's given people free will. We can also see the heart of God in the end of the book. Because in Revelation chapter 21, this is what John, the apostle exiled on the island of Patmos, saw in a vision. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Let me pause there for just a moment, because uh, I didn't stop there last service. But the sea was a very, very scary thing for people. Today, we all like to go to the beach mostly. It's like chilling out and stuff like that. Not so much for people back then, and so that's why that language is there. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out. Sorry, nerd moment. It says, I saw the holy city... The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, again, if you just heard the story of the garden and you recognize who God is and what his will is, let's pause for a moment. When we talk about the will of God, God's will was not for people to sin and for brokenness and disease and death and all of that stuff to come into the world. So if you've ever mistakenly comforted a grieving friend by just telling them that that was God's will, that their loved one passed away or that they're sick, please stop. That's not God's will. God's will was to create people to be in relationship with them. And when we broke it, God fixed it. And in the end of all things, God is truly going to have proven to have fixed all of it. Notice God went from not being able to be in the presence with the people because of their sin to now because of Jesus, God will be in their presence. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and he will be their God. 
All of the suffering, all of the suffering that we face and the hurt that we face and the death and the sickness and the trials that we face will be no more because that was not God's intent for us. We broke it, God's fixed it. So that's the character of God and the character of people. The truth is, the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Unfortunately, while I understand the heart of the question, it's a bad question. Because while God created people to be good, in our sin, we were no longer good. We were sinful and broken. And God did allow the consequences of sin to take root because he didn't dash our free will. Because God doesn't want robots that just love him because they're forced. He gave us free will to love him in return for his love. And so the character of God is that God is just and holy, but he's a loving God. And that never, ever stops. And people... We're created to be good, designed to be good, but broke the whole thing because of sin. But the goal God has for them is for them to be good again. When we talk about salvation, we're not just talking about Jesus dying on the cross so we can get our ticket into heaven and our escape from the fires of hell. No, salvation is a plan to redeem and restore and make new people that were designed to be that way from the get-go. God didn't just throw us out like trash when we broke things. He did something to fix us. And so knowing that that's the character of God, I want to bring us to two Proverbs really quickly because when we're talking about gratitude, understanding the character of God and now understanding that the key to understanding scripture and these Proverbs is found in fear of that God in both reverence, awestruckness, if that's even a word, <laughs> and reverence. Two quick verses here. Proverbs 15, verse 13. A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. And then when you go to chapter 17, verse 22, it says, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. You see, if we lose sight of the perspective of who God truly is and who we are, it's easy to moralize the Proverbs and turn them into a give and receive sort of proposition. But the truth about the Proverbs is this is wisdom literature and it's telling us something about the state of humanity. And this is the state of humanity. If things are go going well in life, if you're on a high, you have a smile, you have a pep in your step, things are good. And when things are at a low and you're struggling, you're hurting, your loved one is hurting, it crushes the spirit. See, when we talk about gratitude in church, oftentimes us church people can really do some big damage with this subject. Because what we tend to do is we tend to gloss over people's real hurts and maladies in life. 
and we just tell them, be joyful, be grateful, put a smile on your face, cheer up. In fact, we've been guilty at times of telling people that because they're downtrodden, they have no faith. But what this proverb teaches us is that the natural response to our life circumstances is that our outward appearance flows from what's going on inside. If I'm happy because things are going well, I'm going to show it. And if things are not going well, I'm going to show it too. That's the ebbs and flows of life. And there's the reason that I wanted us to see those Proverbs in light of the perspective of who God is. Because when it comes to biblical gratitude, gratitude is rooted in God, not in the ebbs and flows of life's circumstances. Gratitude is rooted in God and not the ebbs and flows of life's circumstances. And if we do root them in those things, those highs and lows, what will result is we'll either only ever be grateful when we have things going well or we'll ignore gratitude altogether because we're so sky high in our joy for what we have or what we've experienced that we forget God exists. And when we're at our lows, that's when we start to feel downtrodden and we start to ask the questions, why are you letting this happen, God? And it's a worthwhile question because that's the state you're in. That's the feeling you have. See, what I love about Scripture is that it gives us true perspective about gratitude, but it also doesn't pull punches when it comes to telling us the plight of humanity. It acknowledges that things go south. In fact, our own Savior and Lord Jesus, when he was in the garden praying before he was to be arrested, do you know what he prayed? He prayed, Father, take this cup from me. We find that he was sweating profusely out of anxiety and fear for what was to come, that it became like drops of blood in his sweat. And yet, Jesus was obedient to the cross and he said, not my will, but your will be done. There's another story that I want us to conclude on this morning and it's found in Philippians chapter two, verses 12 through 18. And Philippians is written by Paul the apostle. Paul was a missionary in the early church. He had been a persecutor of the church. He ran into Jesus they resurrected Jesus, and Jesus saved him. He turned his life around. Paul became forever grateful for what Jesus had done in his life, and he wanted to tell the entire world about it. And so he did that. He went around, and he shared the gospel message. He went to any locale that he could. And this often got him in trouble. And to a certain point, he became arrested and imprisoned. And that's where he is when he writes the letter to the Philippian Christians. And what he says, he says, I'm in chains, and he writes this letter because his friends of faith are not only afraid for his well-being, but they're afraid for their own. Because they're thinking, was it better to not be this Jesus-following person? Because if the great one, Paul, our missionary, the guy that probably founded so many churches, including this one, 
they're just thinking, this is not what this is supposed to be. I don't know if I want a part of this. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage them. And in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 2, he writes this. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now that is a pretty audacious thing for Paul to say. Because who in their right mind in chains and suffering would tell the people he's writing to to rejoice and be glad with him. See, he doesn't say, oh, I'm in prison, but I'm not really in prison. He doesn't manufacture joy. He doesn't ignore his plight. That's not a biblical idea to do that. Instead, what he recognizes is that his gladness, his joy, his gratitude is rooted in God, his Savior, through Jesus, to whom he's been preaching the gospel about. And so Paul is able to, to not only have joy and gratitude, and he's also able to command this to his hearers because their gratitude is not rooted in their circumstances, but in God who is good and gracious. And so, you know, when we're in this season of thanksgiving, it's easy for us to focus on the circumstances of life as the decision maker as to whether or not we're going to have gratitude or not. But I want to encourage you that biblical gratitude does not encourage you to look past or ignore your circumstances. It doesn't ask you to not feel the hurt and pain when life is low. And it does not encourage you not to celebrate when things are going well. Instead, it encourages us not to let those be where our gratitude or lack thereof are rooted. But instead, that it be rooted in God and God alone. Because the character of God is such that he created us to be good, and when we broke things ourselves, he stepped in with the fix by sending his son Jesus to an instrument of torture and death. And so this year, as you're considering what you're thankful for, you know, my, at my in-laws, we always do the, not always, but sometimes they try to force us to do the what are you thankful for thing around the table. I hate that. Sorry, I'm just not like the happy-go-lucky like optimist person. But, but the thing is, though, 
is I think the reason that I don't like that that much is because oftentimes, you know, while there are definitely good things going on, there are also things that are struggles going on in life. And to just shout out some random stuff feels superficial. And not only do we as Christians not want to be superficial in our gratitude, but we also don't want to press that superficiality on a world that's hurting and broken. Instead, we want it to be meaningful and directed to God because God and God alone is the only one that can save and restore and redeem the hurting people around us. That's the goal God has in the end for people. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. So I wanna encourage you one more time with the idea that gratitude, biblical gratitude, is rooted in God, not in the ebbs and flows of life circumstances. If we remember that, we won't have a fake and flimsy sort of gratitude, but we'll be grateful to God in all circumstances and we'll be a light to those that need that same God to shine in their life too. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for being so good and uh, so gracious to us. And I pray, God, that um, you will help each and every one of us. God, I know it doesn't matter if we're a new believer, a not yet believer, or a seasoned veteran in the faith. God, I know how easy it is to lose perspective because, um, because you're big and you're good, but it's hard to see the forest for the trees. And so God, it's easy for us to lose perspective, especially as we go into a holiday season where for many it can be a wonderful, joyous occasion, but for even more it can be a source of hurt because we are going through grief and suffering in the moment or we've had griefs and sufferings that still stick with us and scar us to this day and all the holidays do is they remind us of those things. And so, God, I thank you not only that you ask us to have gratitude rooted in you and not in the day-to-day ebbs and flows of life, but, God, I pray that you will also be our source of comfort um, at this time and that we never lose that perspective, not only so that uh, you can help us to persevere and move in life with faith and hope, but so that we can be a light, a guiding light to those around us who need you as well. And so we just thank you for being so good to us, uh, for creating us, for loving us, and for sending your son, Jesus, uh, to cover our sins and to restore us and to the goodness you created us to be. And it's in your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.